Well, one of the big issues is that there are a lot of big issues that we have to figure out. And one of the things that I focus on here on this channel is trying to help equip you to make a difference in the culture and all the different cultural battles that are being fought. And ha fought. How do we stand up for the Christian worldview in this cultural moment? So joining me to have this conversation today, uh, as well as trying to help train and prepare you as a parent or a student, is Brett Kunkel, the president, the founder of Maven, my boss. I got to be a little bit careful in what I say. You know, I can only say nice things, right, Brett? It's just... Uh, it's, uh, that, that's it's, right. that, well, no. it's that fear of an employee, you know, and no, no, relationship. This is, no, this is a great example of speaking the truth in love. So every all the nice things you say about me are actually true. <laughs> and because you have such a, you know, huge affection for me, it's in love. And so this is the biblical model. So keep speaking truth in love, Ryan. I, I will attempt to do so. No. Um, <laughs> and if but, you don't, um, you're fired. Okay, so let's rewrite my intro. Hold on a second. Um, no, but Brett has been, man, you've been doing this ministry. Uh, you've been working with students for a very, very, very long time. Um, I started you know. when I was in, I was four years old. <laughs> but 25 years, over 25 years experience working with students of all ages as a youth pastor with Stand to Reason, now with Maven, um, and really uh, your your heart, right? And your goal of trying to equip students to, to live well, as well as those who work with students, those who are training students. And so one of those things is Maven. And what we're going to be talking about is different cultural battles that uh, we need to be equipped to face, as well as kind of pointing you to the Maven Conference coming up this March. Uh, and discussing and kind of going deeper into some of these issues that we're going to discuss here. So, Brett, why don't we kind of just start off and tell everybody a little bit if they're unaware of what Maven is. They should know if they follow this channel because I work with Maven and I lead field guides. And they know about that. But tell everybody a little bit more kind of what you, kind of your heart is, what your passion is in the ministry that you are working in. Yeah, well, our passion at Maven is to equip the, the next generation uh, to know what they believe, to know why they believe it, and to know why it matters. I mean, it's, it's the idea that the Christian worldview is a view uh, that encompasses every square inch of reality, and then we live that out. And there is not a single part of life that's untouched by the radical truth of Christ. And so, uh, so young people are our passion. And so we do work specifically with young people. We have a, a student conference that we've done in the past. We do the immersive experiences every year. I speak to youth all the time. But then there's a secondary audience that's just as important, and it's the people who are discipling young people. So this is the parent, but not just the parent. It's the grandparent. It's the uh, youth worker. It's the Christian educator. It's the homeschooler. It's anyone who is a stakeholder in the lives of young people. And frankly, with the aggressive, secular, hostile culture that we live in, we need more people to really take ownership of, of that and, uh, and really form allies with the church, with Christian education, with uh, parents and grandparents, extended family, to really disciple our young people well. So that's what we're about at Maven. Yeah. People always ask me, what's the word Maven mean? Why, why name it Maven? Well, a, a Maven is someone, it refers to someone who's knowledgeable or an expert in a particular field, and then they seek to pass that on. And so that really captures what we want to do. We want to know 
God's truth, no Christian truth, and then pass that on to the next generation. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And so one of the things we want to talk about is, as we mentioned, all these different cultural issues and helping you not only navigate them well yourself, but training students to do so. Uh, I want to make sure I mention that if you have questions uh, that you want to, you know, can submit to in the live chat, if you're watching live on YouTube, put those in the live chat and we'll try to get to those questions uh, that you are interested in. Got one that came in through Instagram. Um, and so we'll get there a little bit. But uh, you mentioned here, Brett, that, that, that there's this kind of um, kind of onslaught or this this extra pressure, maybe, so to speak, today that, that students are facing uh, in these cultural battles. And I'm just kind of curious uh, of how you kind of seen this be different uh, over the years. Is there more of a, a pressure? Is there more happening now than, than 10, 15, 20 years ago? Uh, and if so, kind of what are you seeing is different in today's culture and what students are facing now than what students maybe faced a generation ago? Yeah, it seems to me that clearly uh, the, there, there are greater challenges for this generation. And I know a lot of people will say, well, you know, adults have always said that. And I think there is a sense where older generations and younger generations will kind of clash in terms of their values or their worldview or that kind of thing. But I think we can demonstrate that uh, there is a radical shift in worldview from earlier generations to this generation. And of course, you know, studies like Barna's study uh, has shown this to be true. You know, for instance, the shift in uh, the Christian worldview between boomers and Xers and millennials down to the Gen Z. Gen Z, only 4% of Gen Zers would affirm a biblical view. And that is just uh, decreased through uh, the different generations. So there's that data, but also I think we can just we can just see this with particular issues. So now you have young people, a growing amount of young people who affirm LGBTQ issues. And just take the T issue, right? The fact that you have lots of young people who are on board with the trans issue and the fact that young, you know, that men and women based upon, solely based upon an internal feeling can the, declare themselves to be uh, someone of the opposite sex, you know, a trans woman is a woman, as the slogan goes, that right there should indicate there's a radical shift in worldview. And then I think you take all the, the, the kind of those challenges and we could highlight, you know, a, a host of other issues. And then you add to it technology. You add to it this uh, like absolute access to young people 24-7 I think it makes parenting that much more challenging because there used to be a day where parents uh, in their appropriate role as protectors of their kids could kind of keep things out. And there's a healthy part of that, right? And then as you disciple and train and equip your kids, you can kind of control the flow of information, their exposure to right. false ideas. Uh, now, with technology, devices, uh, glowing rectangles all over the place, and particularly in our hands, in our pockets, following us around, a young person now, that, that stuff, those ideas are seeping in. And they're seeping in through images, not, not your traditional arguments. Uh, often it's not argumentation. Right. It's images that are doing the persuading. So I think you know, these kinds of things make it more difficult for us as adults to disciple this generation. 
Yeah. And so, you know, what you are maybe not suggesting, I know you're not suggesting, we had a cold conversation on this last time you, you joined me a couple of years ago, actually for two, the conference two years ago, uh, but on screens is not suggesting, you know, removing screens from the house and you can never look at it ever again. Uh, but it is interesting, as you mentioned, uh, kind of the, the switch, right? And I remember when I graduated high school, I'd grown up in Christian schools my whole life and I was going off to uh, a junior college and the local newspaper wanted to write a story about like Christian students who have always been in Christian education going off to public school school for the first time or something. And I remember them asking my dad a question, like, do you feel like, you know, he's been, you know, in this bubble, you know, secluded from the real world and, 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 and hidden from the real things of life. And I just remember my dad responding and saying something like, so yeah, we've protected him from drugs and alcohol. And like, I, I don't know why that's a bad thing to protect our kids from, but we almost like see it as this like, man, if you don't give your kids the phone, if you don't expose your kids to everything that's going on, you are this overprotective you know, hovering parent. I know you kind of talk about this a lot as these hovering parents and, and what that looks like. So, so what is maybe an appropriate role uh, for the parents listening of, of trying to protect their kids from this information that's being presented, not through arguments, but just images uh, versus also not completely like locking them in the closet and allowing them to be exposed to the world? Yeah. Well, I think there's a number of things that parents need to do. Number one, I think parents should step back and just ask the question, what is normal in our culture? Because I think one of the most powerful ways that culture shapes us is simply by presenting to us what is normal. And so then we see it over and over all around us. It normalizes things. And we just go along with it without any critical examination, without right. any careful reflection. And so this thing is one of those aspects. I can guarantee, guarantee you that, that um, the vast majority of people who have a smartphone never spent any time carefully thinking about and researching the smartphone. And I don't mean like researching, like what's the best model, the iPhone 11 or the iPhone 12? You right. know? I mean, thinking about the nature of this device, looking into the data, and, and the data that shows correlation between mental, you know, certain um, detrimental mental health outcomes and the use of the screen and things like yeah. that. We, we haven't, and our kids certainly haven't. It's just normalized. Every kid around them has one. It just is presented as the norm, and then we go along with it. So one of the things that we have to, I think, constantly do as parents is step back and go, okay, what is presented to me as normal? Whether it has to do with technology, whether it has to do with education, whether it has to do with my material goods, I mean, all of it, and constantly be evaluating those things. And so, for instance, just because, you know, pretty much all young people have a smartphone, I think we'd all say, oh, well, obviously that alone is not enough to justify giving this to someone, right? you know? And so, yeah, okay, so then what would be the reasons that would justify <clears throat> giving this to our young people? Well, not, not just because everyone else has one. Uh, you know, maybe we'd say, well, they need to be in touch or they need, this is how they primarily socialize, you know, socialize with others or things like that. Okay, we can consider those arguments, but let's consider all sides of those arguments. And, um, and this is where we have to th think about and be willing to make some difficult decisions and even be courageous maybe to be revolutionary 
and to say, hey, maybe we ought to operate differently. So for instance, I, I've been thinking about technology, uh, just thinking about some different ideas on this because I'm just, I'm just seeing the impact on the lives of our young people and not just the lives of our young people, us adults as well. Yeah. But how much damage is done? And my reflections have, you know, I, it has me wondering, would we be better? <laughs> would we be better without smartphones? At least maybe for the first 18 years of life. And Ryan, you're a Christian school teacher. I just yeah. talked to a huge group of Christian school teachers yeah. in uh, Florida last week. And, and I was at some Christian schools speaking and it's just clear that for Christian school teachers and school teachers in general, smartphones are the bane of their existence. <laughs> I mean, you know it, right? You yeah. know that you're constantly battling that thing. Okay, parents, parents are battling the same thing at home as well. You know, we're, we're constantly reminding our kids, hey, get off that thing or trying to manage it. And of course, it's just impossible to manage. You can't be with your so maybe we ought to think about being a little more revolutionary and i mentioned an idea that i've had and i, I think people some people might think i'm crazy but let me explain here's my idea what if we could in the church create a culture uh where for the most part maybe we didn't give smartphones to our kids for say the first 16 or 18 years of their life and that the church would be on board with this the families in the churches of course it's we're gonna say it's an individual family choice uh the parents are the the, the primary authority so they're gonna have to make that call but if we could all agree given the data given what we've seen given now hey a good almost 10 years of experience watching what's going on, kind of participating in this social experiment with young people, right? And not exactly knowing how this thing's going to end. Well, we have a lot of data. There's incredible harm from this. What if we got a little revolutionary in the church and said, hey, we're going to band together. And in the church as believers, we're going to create a new normal for our kids for the sake of their souls. <laughs> for the sake of their discipleship, for the sake of the mission of the church, so that our kids are not exposed uh, and inundated with the false ideas of this world, with the, the false visions of flourishing. And, and so we're going to create this culture where Christian young people are going to be different. And they're, they're not going to have, you know, phones and social media platforms so that we can do appropriate protection, and in that appropriate protection, really disciple them seriously. I mean, in, in uh, you know, very deep ways, and get them grounded in the faith before we ever hand over that phone. Now, I, I think some people out there maybe think I'm nuts, but I'm just looking. <laughs> well, I mean, at you are. Going. Yeah. Well, yeah. There's <laughs> there is a very real aspect of that, but. Um, do I, I mean, again, I, when I mentioned that idea to these Christian school teachers, I mean, some of them were clapping and they were like <laughs> cheering because they, they, they're in it every day battling yeah. it. And uh, so anyway, that's, I, I'm not even sure what your question was, but it got yeah. me going on that particular issue. Yeah. Uh, you, you, I, I, you, you didn't even get close to answering my question. 
Um, <laughs> I, I don't know what you're thinking. Uh, well, that's let's, because let's get back on track here. Sometimes the question that's asked is not the right question. And so I'm going to answer the question I think you should have asked, Brian. Look, this is not like it's about what I mean. I am the person speaking. You cannot just reinterpret my words to mean what you want them to mean and answer that. This is my show, Brett. Come on. Um, no, but you, it's real. It's true, right? It, it, at my school, almost every single teacher uh, – we collect cell phones at the beginning of class. We, we have some sort of holder where we force the kids to turn in the phones and, and they get it back at the end of class. And, and it's not mandatory for us to do, uh, but it is strongly encouraged and virtually every single teacher does because if you let that kid have the phone, it's going off in their pocket the entire class and, and they don't have the willpower to resist not to look at it. And I think that sometimes... It, I think parents are, are sometimes unaware, but I think students are not even aware sometimes of how much it goes off. And I know one thing you talk about, we talked about in our last conversation a few years ago was this idea of notifications. Um, so last week, we actually had a, a legit lockdown at my school. Um, the the Los Angeles County Sheriff was looking for someone, uh, showed up at our school, said lock down the campus. And so we went on lockdown for about an hour uh, in classes. Now I've collected all my students' cell phones. They're sitting in a wooden holder at the front of my classroom and those phones buzzed and buzzed and buzzed the entire hour we were on lockdown to where at the end, I kind of said a joke. I said, wow, some of you have a lot of notifications to check. And I kid you not, they looked at their phone and their friends in other classes who had their phones were texting. There's a group thread of that grade. There were over 300 messages. Each student in my phone had over 300 notifications on their phone in a one hour lockdown. And it's like, yeah. can you like, how can I teach? With their phones buzzing, and now maybe there's not 300 in a normal day because we're on lockdown, but like when that thing is buzzing 50, 60 times in my one hour class, like that with the willpower to be able to resist looking at that, it's just calling out for that attention. Now, yeah, um, let, me, let me jump in here. Yeah. Students in their candid moments will tell us they want us to lead on this. Right. I've talked to students who have said, hey, when I'm doing my homework at home, I have to, I go give my phone to my parents and say, don't let me have this for the next hour because I can't concentrate, right? They want, and, and that's a cry for help. Uh, they want us to help. When we, at, at my church, when we do youth events or youth retreats, or even on the immersive experiences, we will greatly discourage bringing any cell right. phones. And so students will be without phones for a week. And when they, at the end of that, part of their reflection is, it was so good not to have the phone. And sometimes it's actually the parents who have more of a, of a problem with it. Parents in their fear, in their overprotection, you know, and who have been conditioned that it's normal to be able to have access to your kid 24 seven end up having more problems with the phones and the students. So yeah. this is something we all need to work on. Yeah. Okay. So Brett, you just triggered a few thoughts in my mind. And so I'm kind of curious on your response. So the number one pushback I get kind of this, this, what you're talking about, this new norm uh, of phones, especially taking phones away or not having them. As I say, look, students, your phone is keeping you up at night. Like you should shut off your phone, put it on silent mode to where no notifications come on, come through between, let's say, 10 o'clock at night and seven o'clock in the morning so that while you're trying to sleep, it's not dinging because that keeps waking you up. And whether you check it or not, you're not getting that sleep. And the number one pushback is what if there's an emergency? 
what if there's an emergency where I have to find out at 2 a.m. that something happened, my, my father is dying or whatever that may be. And so I'm kind of curious what you would say because you asking people and the trips that I go on and I love that this is like a, an expectation is no phones for a week. Um, what if there's an emergency? Like, like what are we supposed to do without cell phones if you're saying don't give your kid a cell phone till 16 or 18 years old? Yeah, I guess we do what people did prior to having cell phones <laughs> you know i mean it was like it's like well you know this is not uh something unique in the history of humanity and let's mock ourselves for a little bit i mean let's mock that response appropriately like come on for thousands of years human beings have lived through emergencies with no technology right. <laughs> and so um you know look if, if, if there are times when there are going to be emergencies and, you know, we want to respond as quickly as we can. Uh, but if that's really a huge issue, get a home phone, right? Because a lot of us don't have, you know, a, a landline at yeah. our home. So get, spend whatever. It's, it's only probably like 20 bucks a month to get a landline. That. <laughs> that, yeah, probably less than that. And it's that investment will pay huge dividends, you know, for you to be able to then set your cell phone aside and say, here's my, you know, the people who need to know, here's the emergency number at night, my phone's off. So you just let those people know, I keep my cell phone off at night, instead call this number. And if that's the only reason you have that phone, well, there, that solves the, 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 the problem. But frankly, look, there's hardly any emergencies right. that were needed immediately. And look, if I, if my dad has a heart attack, it, it, you know, it's, it's, and, and he, he's not going to call me first. I don't want him to call me first. Uh, he, he needs to call 911 first if there's a real emergency. And, you know, and then, uh, I, you know, I'll, at some point I'll be reached that, you know, that I can get to him. But there, there's, I think that's overplayed. And it turns out to be largely be uh, an excuse. Yeah. You know, what, I mean, what percentage of opportunities or emergencies do we miss because we weren't able to be reached? And, uh, and let's weigh that with the damaging effects of yeah. having 24 access, 24 seven access to us. Well, I think it stems from what you just said is this like expectation that we should be able to be reached at any moment at any time and have that instant response. And it's kind of what text messaging is done where we no longer like expect like, and this is how I treat like emails, right? I remember once, you know, like, it's like, look, I don't work on the weekends. And I remember a student emailing me on Saturday and it's like, I got the email, but I'm not responding till Monday. And then the parent emailed me on Sunday saying, Hey, my student emailed you yesterday. Why? Like what, what, what's going on? And it's like yeah. on Monday morning, I got back and said, hey, sorry, I'm back at work now. And it's like we have this almost expectation like we should be able to reach anyone at any time and they should get yeah. back to me at any time rather than like, no, like you need to sleep and you need to put your phone down and you need to have times of solitude and silence and breaks from technology. And that's actually a good, healthy thing. Um, now, yeah. what you also said is this idea of students kind of crying out for help. Uh, I thought was interesting is when I when I taught my chapter on the ethics of sexuality and talked about pornography. Uh, one of the students like very flat out was just like, what can we do? Like if this is an issue. And I said, like, one of the things I said is like, look, if your problem, which is often is, is looking at porn on your phone at night in, alone in your bedroom, then guess what you can easily do? Don't take your phone in your bedroom at night while you're alone. 
Right. And so, again, I think it's the same kind of thing of like we are giving students access to to all this information, including negative stuff, and then wondering why they're staying up till two o'clock in the morning, why they're looking and struggling with pornography, why they're not getting homework done. And there is this cry that we often hear when discussing this issue of like kind of almost take my phone away, help me because I don't have the willpower to almost just give it up. Yeah. And I mean, and look, kind of look, take look, it from me. Look at the rates of anxiety, yeah. depression, the rise in attempted suicides, the loneliness amongst this generation. This is where we need to think worldviewishly about these things as Christians and say, okay, what is it? Let's step back here. What does it mean to be human? What is a human being? What's the nature of humanity such that when we plug into technology the way that we do, there are huge, there's a huge negative impact on our flourishing. You know, and think worldviewishly about this stuff and let our Christian worldview guide us through these issues. Yeah. Uh, so. Is that a word, worldviewishly? It is now. <laughs> That's how language works. All right. So kind of switching <laughs> topics, but the same idea, right? So, okay. So you, you mentioned this idea of create a new norm. What came to my mind, or no, asking actually the question, is this normal? One thing I find is that, that students ask the question and then they will say, well, well, yeah, of course. Right. So I'm thinking, for example, uh, uh, again, I'm teaching the chapter on marriage and sexuality. So I'm thinking of like something like cohabitation. Right. So uh, it has become normal in our culture for couples to live together before they get married. And that's not only seen as normal, but a good thing that is going to somehow benefit and, and, and be good for the marriage, eventual marriage. Um, and so if a student stops and says, is this normal? Then the response goes, yeah, it is. So I'm kind of curious, what what would you say to the student or even the parent who kind of gets maybe their norm, uh, their sense of what is normal, maybe from culture? And so how do you how do you push back against that and say, is this normal? And culture says it's normal, but they're supposed to say it's not normal. It shouldn't be happening, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, I think there's two senses that we can think about normal. We can think of it in the descriptive sense, right? So just describing the state of affairs around us, like what's normal? And there's no value judgment there. It's just let's identify the things that are considered normal. So that's the descriptive sense. But then there's the prescriptive sense. And that's where we're asking, okay, not only what is normal, but what should be normal. And this is where, you know, in the Christian worldview, we go back to the, the question of God. You know, God grounds all of reality for us. And so God grounds our moral reality. And so we want to say, okay, the, these, these lifestyles and these values and these moral obligations or whatever are considered the norm in the culture, but we need, right, we need a, an objective standard by which to measure those things. And so we, it certainly, it can't be the culture itself, right, that, that a group of individuals who collectively are a culture well, that's not an objective standard. That would be a right. subjective standard that then we'd say, well, changes from culture to culture and every culture just has their own standards. We want to say, no, yeah, there's actually something that transcends human culture. And, uh, and therefore that, that grounded in God becomes the standard. So that's the prescriptive sense. And so we're always looking at the description and saying, okay, let's compare it to the prescription, uh, the prescription of God for, you know, morality for human flourishing. And we have to constantly compare it back to the Christian worldview, the Christian scriptures. So 
with that, you know, there's there's different ways in which we as an apologist approach Christianity and the truth claims of Christianity and providing evidence and arguments. And I'm just kind of curious of of kind of what you've seen as far as because there's questions of like, does God exist, right? And there's the basic apologetics, the reliability of the Bible and stuff like that. But then there's all these kind of cultural issues that flow from a Christian worldview or that at least a Christian worldview kind of speaks into. And so uh, I'm kind of curious how you think that this kind of maybe works together um, or, you know, is there a way in which we do one without the other um, or how you kind of go about building a case? Because really it's like, well, we have to think about what the Christian worldview has to say, but now we have to provide reasons for the truth of the Christian worldview. Um, is that something that students yeah. are asking uh, or is it kind of just assuming that relativism of, well, every view has their own thing. It just is what just Christians say. Yeah. Well, I think, so I think there are a couple of issues here. Number one, there's what students need and then, you know, opposed to what they're asking. I think what they're asking reveals some of their need in our discipleship, in our training. And so when we step back and we think about like apologetics, uh, I think it's important to remember that apologetics is actually a subset of theology, right? And there's this larger theological project that we need to do. And our theology is uh, all the explicit affirmations of a deeply Christian worldview. And so that has to be part of our, our training. So doing apologetics needs to be seen as part of this larger theological project, this Christian worldview project. And so that's why I say our apologetic needs to be more worldviewish. Uh, so we don't need to stop doing apologetics. We need to do it, but we also need to do good Christian worldview training because, I mean, think about uh, all of our beliefs like puzzle pieces. You know, you dump out the typical Christian kid's mind if you were to dump it out on the table, it would just be a scattered mess, disconnected. And good worldview training takes those pieces and begins to lay out a framework for how those pieces, those individual pieces fit. And it takes those little bits and pieces and puts them into this total picture. And one of the huge things that that does, that kind of training does for young people, is it provides coherence, number one, for a, a young person's views and for their worldview, it, it, it makes sense of the world around us. And see, our problem is sometimes what we will do is there will be a moral issue in the culture. And so we go running to that issue and we deal with that issue, but we do it often in isolation of the larger Christian worldview. And, you know, and so kids will hear, well, God says, you know, that uh, he made the male and female. And that's why, you know, there shouldn't be trans. And we don't explain that out. Or it's the Bible says, you know, lays out this moral obligation. The Bible says no to, you know, the gay lifestyle. And we need to do more. We need to put it in that larger worldview to help them see the why underneath that. And so some of our worldview will then intersect with apologetics, with a defense of the faith. And, and, and I think we strengthen, so, so we bring coherence, but then we also strengthen the plausibility of the Christian worldview in a young person's mind such that these answers have more force. So when we think about our beliefs, you know, there's, there's different aspects to a belief. Uh, you know, the, number one, there's the strength of a belief. So just because a young person says, well, I believe in God, we can't be satisfied with that. We yeah. want to know, okay, you believe in God, but what's the strength of that belief? Are you like, 
you know, 51, 49? Are you 80, 20? I want to get you to a, a, a much higher strength where you, the, 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 this belief is a very strong belief. But then there's the centrality of a belief. Okay, maybe I have this belief in God, but it really, and what we know from uh, Christian Smith's work with young people, the sociologist Christian Smith and his, you know, groundbreaking stuff about 15 years ago uh, in soul searching, what we found is that most young people, their religious beliefs operate in the background of life. So you may believe in God, but it's not a very central idea. You just pull it out when you're in trouble or you need to ask him for something or something yeah. like that. So it doesn't play the central role. And so we want to we want to give some good apologetic to really strengthen their belief, to help them be convinced. And I think ultimately move them to the point where they don't just believe in God, but they know God exists, right? That, that communicates the confidence we can have. We can actually know that God is real, not just believe it. And hopefully we get lucky and we're right, but no, we can actually know it's correct. And so I think we need to do that kind of stuff in our training with young people and that's why apologetics is so important we give them the justification and then we we help lay out the framework by answering the big questions of life like origin identity meaning morality destiny those kind of things those big worldview questions and we provide them coherence plausibility help them to see the christian worldview is true and then make sense of all this stuff and so he it, so it, it gives that necessary framework that really then uh, leads to what Romans 12, 2 says, right? Transformation by the renewing of the mind. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, it, what you described there of this idea of pulling God out kind of only when you need him, it's almost like, um, uh, as one of my textbooks describes it, it's almost like an idea of like practical atheism. Like like you're, you're practically living as if God doesn't exist. And that what God has to say is is relevant uh, you're, you're, as you're living as if what God has to say is not relevant to the issues you're dealing with. Uh, but yeah, I believe in God. Um, so I'm kind of curious, like, what would you say to that, to the parent or the student? Like, how do you get, maybe to the parent, uh, how do you get students to recognize what God has to say? It, it not only matters, but should be where we go uh, when trying to figure out an issue um, in culture or, or with life. Yeah, well, I think number one, the training has to start right from the get-go. I mean, when they're young, soon as they're talking, when they're two, three years old, we're thinking through how do we ground them in Christian theology, in the Christian worldview, in Christian truth. And so this is where things like catechism are really helpful tools. In fact, our church is going through catechism right now, and the adults and the kids are doing it together. Hmm. And as we're going through the catechism and answering these questions, you, you see how relevant it is in this day and age. Our, you know, one of our last catechism questions was about God making us and making us in his image and making us male and female, you know? And so we're grounding them in these truths very young and, and then helping to establish the authority of scripture uh, early and often. And so part of that includes reading it regularly. It includes giving apologetics for it really helping them to know this book, right? Because I think for most of our kids, and even for a lot of our adults, the Bible is like a stranger, yeah. right? And think about, think about a stranger. Like if someone comes up to me on the, the, the sidewalk, I'm walking along and they come up to me and I've never seen this person before. They're a stranger, total stranger. And they say, hey, 
uh, you, I want you to do three things for me. Here they are. And they command me to do three things. Am I going to go do those three things? Yes. No. Oh, no. <laughs> you might, Ryan. You're, you're a conspiracy theorist. But um, no, of course, you're going to say, well, well, no. And the first question is going to be, who are you? He says, oh, I'm just a, I'm just a stranger walking around here. Well, I'm going to say, well, no, I'm not going to do what you just asked me to do because you're a stranger. And because you are a stranger, there's no authority there. The Bible turns out to be a stranger for mm. most of our kids. And so no wonder they don't, they have no sense of its authority yeah. in their lives. And so well, they need knowledge. They need knowledge and experience yeah. to help that thing, to bring that, that book, God's word, up close and personal so that then they, they learn to submit to it. And I, let me just say this last thing. So we, there's, there's all this kind of training that we need to do. And then we have got to live this out ourselves. We have got to model this. We may have to make some changes in our own lives yeah. that our kids need to see us submitting to the, the authority of God's word. Oh, you're done. <laughs> <laughs> I know you were expecting. I thought, I thought you had a few more things to say there. <laughs> there was more that was, I, I thought, I thought you, come on, Brad, you're just going to stop there. For, <laughs> well, it, it's what you just said of this like stranger telling you to do something, but why do why should I actually do it? It reminds me, uh, I, I was covering years ago, I was covering, I think it was sexuality. And I asked the students like, what, what do you think about, I don't know if it's homosexuality or sex before marriage or, or something like that. And I remember a student saying, uh, I said, do you, do you think this is right or wrong? And I remember a student saying, well, I know that the Bible says it's wrong, but I don't know why it's actually wrong. Yeah. Right. And it's like, yeah, I, I get that like God says, you know, we shouldn't do this thing, but I don't know like why I actually shouldn't do it because yeah. again, yeah, like, because God's that's, word is no authority. Yeah. He's admitting. I mean, that's it, what's implicit in that is that the, the, the word of God has absolutely zero authority in my life. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I got a, a question here that came in um, and uh, this is from a student who's actually on one of the uh, the biblical immersive experience out to Utah. Uh, I had the privilege of uh, being the field guide for his team. And he says, can you ask Uncle Kunkel what he, that was his words, not mine. I would have changed it slightly. Uh, but can you ask Uncle Kunkel what it means or what it looks like to be holy in this world? Oh, great question. Uh and you can see why a young person would ask that in this world. It's a challenging world out there. What does it mean to be holy? Well, to be holy means to be set apart. And the standard for being set apart, of course, is God. And, you know, First Peter talks of uh, quoting from the Old Testament and quoting from the Lord says, you know, the, the model for us is God. Be holy as I am holy. Right. So I think, number one, you have to constantly draw your attention back to the character and nature of God. This is why it's so important to study Scripture and to study the nature and character of God, to know the attributes of God, to study the Scriptures and see you know, how it emphasizes and what it says about God's holiness, and then what we look like in light of that. So number one, the focus is on the character of God, bringing us constantly back to that standard. And, uh, and we need to do that regularly because it will pull us out of our own context, even if we're surrounded by believers. If our, if, if our friends, the people that we're hanging around, kind of have lowered their standards. They may be believers, but I've seen it with groups of young people. A, a, a good, solid Christian young person then begins to hang out with other believers 
who have lower standards, right? Who will compromise on certain things. And what happens? Well, then that student begins to drop their standards. And this is why we have to constantly, you know, look to the one who is the standard and that's God himself. And so of course his, his communication of that is primarily through his word. So number two, scripture has to be front and center in your life. And so your own personal study of it, your own reading of it. And I would, I would just give a very, a, just a very practical thing for a young person. You know, you can set aside all the kind of devotions or curriculums or whatever, and just start by reading a chapter a day, start reading larger chunks of right. scripture and then read it over and over and over again. We've got to do more of that. That alone, if you read larger chunks and you read it over and over and over again, has a, an incredible way of just uh, letting scripture soak into your soul and yeah. uh, you absorb more of it. So that's, the, you know, that those are some things I would say, you know, very practically get some, look for some friends or be that friend who leads other friends to say, hey, you know what? The world around us is such a challenging place. We need friendship. And within that deep friendship, we need accountability. Let's get together every other week or let's get together every week. Every Friday morning, we're going to go to breakfast before school and we're going to just talk about life. We're going to hold each other accountable. We're going to pray for each other. We're going to confess our sins to each other. I think having friends who you can confess your sins to and pray, pray for one another is a really vital part of trying yeah. to, to be holy in this world. Yeah. Yeah. I had a very similar question asked to me just a couple of weeks ago, again, as I finished my chapter on sexuality and a student came and just said, you know, how, how can we as high schoolers, uh, live a life of sexual purity when everything around us is, is trying to pull us away from it? How do we stay confident and, and keep pursuing this? And one of the main things is exactly what you just said of you need friends who will encourage you in this. Like that is why it's so important to be connected to the local church and to have good, solid Christian friends, because yeah, if all your friends are doing something else and, and like, man, it, it just becomes so much more difficult because it's already hard to stay sexually pure. And now we're throwing you in a culture that like is completely completely teaching the opposite uh, and then trying to, again, without really addressing it or really coming alongside and supporting students in it, expecting it to just to keep happening for students to, to remain sexually pure. Now, um, you know, part of the, the the idea of this conversation I want to have is is this idea of how can we train and prepare high school students to go out and face these cultural issues without being influenced themselves. And it reminds me of something that I've heard you talk about. I'd love for you to kind of speak more into uh, of this idea of like, um, parents wanting their, their high school students to maybe be in public school because they're going to be the, the light in that school and they're going to be the one making the difference. And, and what you often find is maybe they're being influenced more than they're doing the influencing. So how do we kind of create that balance uh, in that of like, we want to send our kids out, kind of what I talked about before, I'm not keeping them in the bubble. Um, but, you know, are, are high school students really out there like, you know, some are maybe, you know, uh, doing awesome things and being that light, or is it more common that we see them being influenced and pulled away? Yeah. Well, I think from experience and from data, we can look at, uh, more often than not, our young people are being pulled away. They're not being salt and light. It's the rare student today who we see being salt and light. And so, uh, I think given those realities, we need to step back and, and maybe rethink what we've been doing. 
and maybe and, and, and given the, the, the new cultural realities and the new cultural challenges and the aggressive nature of those challenges, we might need to step back and say it's time to readjust our strategy. Just like, I mean, I think warfare is an appropriate analogy. Scripture uses warfare analogy all the time. And, you know, if you're if you keep if you're losing a battle, right, and you keep doing the same thing and you lose the battle after battle after battle. It's time to pull back and to regroup and say, let's try something else. And I think long t- the, lo- the, the, the goal for every believer, the long-term goal for every believer is that we're salt and light, that we're living out the mission of Christ, right? That we're, we're, we're proclaiming the gospel, we're making disciples. That doesn't mean that my six-year-old is ready to be salt and light. In fact, a lot of six-year-olds, are, they're not even believers. Maybe they, they grew up in a Christian home, but they haven't truly converted right? And so I think that that's the first question. Am I convinced, number one, that my kid's a believer? And then number two, uh, are they prepared for the kind of challenges that they're going to face? Do they have a a deep Christian worldview? Do they know what they believe and why they believe it? Because that's at minimum, that's what's required to navigate all of the challenges. And what I see is that kids are thrown into the deep end of the pool way too early and they're overwhelmed. And this is the analogy that um, uh, John and I use at the beginning of our uh, book, A Practical Guide to Culture. It's like teaching my kids how to surf, right? I I want my kids to surf. That's the long-term goal. You know, I live in Southern California. I surf. I've wanted to pass that on to, to my kids, and I want them to surf with me. But in order to get to that point, at first, I have to do some protection, ironically, but protection is a short-term goal. And in that protection, because if all I did was protect, 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 my kid would never serve. So protection is a short-term goal. I'm doing something else in that protection. I'm training, equipping, preparing them. And if I take them out into the water and, I, and they, they start to drown or whatever, I'm going to realize, okay, yeah, they're not ready for this. I got to pull them back out. I got to do more protection and more equipping. But then when I take my kids out and like they're able to paddle on their own, they're able to catch a wave on their own. I'm like, okay, now they might be ready for a bigger day, you know, when the waves get a little bit bigger. Eventually to the point where I want to be able to say, you know what, I trust my kid paddling out by themselves when dad's not even here because I know they're not going to drown. They're going to be able to surf the waves. That's a great analogy for what we need to do with our young people in the culture. And, you know, of course, we want them to be salt and light. That's a long-term goal. But in order to get there, we may have to do some protection first. And why, why, does, it have, why does salt and light have to be the first you know, 10 years of their life. I mean, if, if we end up sacrificing many of our kids during, you know, by, mm. by, by not protecting them and we lose them early on, well, then they've lost 70, 80 additional years of being salt and light. Yeah. And you know, I remember uh, hearing my own son say, look, I've got the rest of my life to be salt and light. I need to get equipped and ready and prepared uh, as much as possible so that I can be effectively be, I can effectively be salt and light. So I think we got to raise a smart son. Uh, I would agree. I I have. (laughs) I've done a great job with him. Uh, No, but I think that is a good point of like, okay, is it possible we want them to make this huge difference in the four years of high school? And again, like we're losing them for a much longer uh, period of time. I think that is a good point. And and, uh, yeah, so right here. Uh, Brett and John Stone Street did write uh, that book, A Practical Guide to Culture. And then right next to it is cut off is The Student's Guide to Culture for Students. I, I do have to say, though, this this is a great book. Uh, the first half, uh, I did like the first half better uh, than the second half. I think the first <laughs> half was very well written. The second half was a little bit sloppy. Um, 
Was that yeah. your half? Sure, First. whatever. <laughs> you're, you're undermining your own authority. Come on. Everyone oh, knows that the, the, the second half was the strong part of the book. Okay, okay. Um, I forget what you signed in that in that copy, but something about uh, John Stone Street not knowing something. I forget exactly. <laughs> I'd have to pull it off and look. Um, okay, so before we kind of jump in a little bit to the conference here in the last few minutes, um, <laughs> What what comes to mind as well is at the very beginning, you started off by saying like, like there's just a different worldview approach to what's going on. <laughs> and there might be comments. Uh, there you go. Your son is definitely smart. <laughs> um, uh, a different just worldview approach, right? You, and you talked about this idea where, where we, we were seeing more more frequently feelings are trumping reality uh, and what someone says they, they, they are or they feel that they are or or um, what you believe about yourself is more important than what is what is true. And so how do we train and prepare students to engage culture uh, with good arguments and evidence and 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 reasons um, when they are when what culture is doing is, as you said, just pictures, not actual arguments and and where feelings are trumping uh, evidence. And so how do we I mean, do we just turn the feeling card on, too? Or how do we kind of in those conversations that we're trying to navigate these issues? How do we help the person that we're talking to realize the downfall maybe of that worldview approach and really shaping or switching the worldview approach that they have to one based on reality? Yeah, well, that that's a huge question, Ryan. It's not one where we can say, well, here's two easy steps to take to accomplish this. I actually think that, the, that we, we need to create a completely alternative culture within the church in order to provide the best environment where, which, where, where we're training young people in, in the proper way to navigate reality and not merely on our feelings. So number one, that's going to require that parents do protecting. We got to protect from those false ideas that creep in from the culture. Number two, we're going to have to limit technology and its ability to influence. Uh, I would say keep your kids off of screens for as long as you possibly can. And there's, there's data from, um, you know, like the APA or from other uh, institutions that talk about the harm. They've even affirmed, hey, for the first two years of life, don't give your kid a screen, right? Because of the, the, the detrimental effects. And so... Uh, I think there's some of that protecting him from the screen because the screen will help condition them to, uh, I, I think, to, to have their feelings as kind of the default. And so you're, you're doing that protection so that you can do something else. And this is where we then need to give good intellectual training. One of the best ways to do that is through books. Uh, we are appropriately called people of the book right? God gave us his word in written form. I don't think that's an accident. I mean, he could have waited 2000 years and put it on a DVD for us, but there's a reason why he did it in written form, because there's something about the written word and the nature of the written word that does something to the very structure of the human mind that watching an image, you know, before your eyes can never do. And so what we need to do is early on ground them in reading and the written word and then through that you know in those early ages we're pouring truth into them and then by the time they're you know maybe fifth sixth seventh grade they're in middle school then we need to teach them logic we need to uh make logic classes an essential part 
of education. You're not going to get it at the pub local public school. So parents are going to have to supplement that. But it is an absolutely essential piece in the training of our young people. If we want them to think well, they've got to know the rules for thinking well. They, they've right. got to discover uh, the, the, the logic of God, the rationality of God. And um, logic is just essential training. And then as they get a little bit older, we need to start doing immersive experiences with them. But doing those at home, basically getting them out, giving them opportunities to articulate this stuff. Uh, and, uh, you know, whether it's on a, a mission trip or whether it's, you know, talking to a family member or your neighbor, uh, but, or go taking them to the uh, local Buddhist temple and say, Hey, let's talk to some monks or, Hey, when the Mormons show up at the door, bring them inside or talk to your atheist buddy or, or whatever we, you know, all of those things I think can help develop a very rich intellectual life that protects them from being swayed simply by feelings and emotions and that helps us to see that truth is subjective in its very nature and that my subjective feelings have to be submitted to the nature of reality to truth itself and to the uh, this ultimately the sovereign god who is the author of all reality yeah. so now that what i've just described is a, a kind of a lifelong project yeah. <laughs> and we have to build alternative cultures where we have these values. And this is where the church has to step back and go, Hey, what's normal in the culture. Okay. Being driven by internal feelings. Okay. That's the norm. We've got to step back, acknowledge that, see how it's influenced us. See how much of our own Christian, our contemporary Christian teaching our contemporary Christian books, our contemporary Christian worship songs reflects not biblical truth, but it reflects right. the spirit of this culture and the spirit of this age. And then step back and redo things and reconstruct this whole thing. And when that we've got a lot of work to do. Yeah. In fact, it yeah. makes me just really, really tired thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, you probably are getting tired, so I'll, I'll let you go here in a moment. Um, <laughs> but question came in for you, and then we'll finish up. Uh, okay. Is it, uh, thanks for the question sent in, uh, is it morally wrong then for Christians to send their kids to public school? Yeah, I don't, I don't think we can make an argument that it's morally wrong. Uh, I think we can make an argument that it may be very unwise, given the nature of things. So I don't think we can say it's morally wrong, uh, although, uh, I, I, I would say, you know, first let's start with, with, with Scripture and then what does Scripture say? You know, and I think about a passage like Deuteronomy 6 as being something that's instructive for us in terms of our, our young people, you know, and so it talks about, you know, these are the commandments that I give you today uh, are to be on your, your hearts and press them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you wake up on and on and on. Many of Christian parents are familiar with that. And so certainly it, it, I think there's what scripture communicates is that the duty uh, primarily falls with the parents to be the ones who oversee the education of their kids and they're uh, educating their kids as well. I don't think there's any prohibition in scripture in having other people involved in that process. So, so by its very nature, having your kid go to a public school or a Christian school, I don't think is wrong in and of itself. I think that might be a difficult argument to make. Yeah. Um, I think you can bring in other people in helping to educate. But 
I would make a really strong argument that in this day and age, it may be very, very unwise to do so. And that yeah. if you do so, you should not be surprised when the vast majority of their education is a secular education. And they, they know, you know, when they get into junior high and high school, they, they don't know, they no longer have a Christian worldview hmm. because we've, uh, you know, we've, we've outsourced that to the wrong folks. So yeah. I don't, I mean, it's a good question. It's, I mean, it's, I'm wrestling with it a little bit. I'm wrestling with is, is there an argument that it's, it's morally wrong? So I, I it's a great question. Um, I forgot the name of the person who asked that. I, I, I'm going to think about that a little more, uh, a little more. Um, if it, if, if it, if there's a moral argument there. Yeah, that's a great question. I love yeah. when I get questions like that, that make me maybe reflect or rethink, but my initial yeah. response would be, I don't think we would say it's morally wrong, but I don't want to close the door on that either. Yeah. At this point, I yeah. want to think about that more. That's good. All right. Well, we are running out of time. And so one of the reasons, again, mentioned that we're having this conversation is wanted to give you a, a brief preview, uh, kind of a, one, an introduction to Maven. And so encourage you to check Maven out, maventruth.org and, and, and everything that Maven is doing and get your kids on the immersive me, experience and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, go for it. It's maventruth.com. .com, Actually, you know, you know what? I bet is org Maven, there too. Dot org would probably take you there too. Yeah, but okay. maybe truth.com. Uh, it's down in the description below if I mess it up. But also uh, coming up here in March is the Maven Conference, and this is going to be live in Southern California as well as a live stream to anywhere that you are. And so uh, I just want to kind of pull that information up and get you to briefly kind of mention and talk about this a little bit uh, here, Brett. So uh, the conference theme this year, kind of talk a little bit about it and, and what people are going to see uh, coming to the conference this year, what what you want to, I guess, get out of it and what why you pick this. Yeah, well, you can go to mavenconferences.com or yep. if you go to maventruth.com, there's a banner you can click on. It will take you to the conference website. The theme this year is in but not of. And the idea is that we live in a culture that's challenging. It's confusing. It's filled with, I mean, some chaos out there, literal chaos. And we as Christians are called in this present cultural moment to be salt and light. But to be salt and light requires that we're in the world, but not of the world. And so what we're, we're really going to explore is what, is what does that look like? What is that? Uh, how do we think about particular issues in the culture? Because I think thinking properly is a huge part of being in, but not of. And we, what we want to do is help Christians navigate some of these cultural issues that, frankly, many Christians are having a difficult time navigating. So we're going to look at issues like freedom and the nature of freedom. And, you know, I hear church leaders chastising their, their, their people for being selfish, but because they make appeals to their freedom as American citizens. Is that a biblical view? Is our, our appeal to freedom invalid or is it inappropriate because we're not supposed to be selfish. Like this is a selfish thing. And so we want to think properly about freedom. Think, you know, Christianly about the nature of freedom. Marriage and family. I mean, you know, what's being presented to our young people and to us is a, you know, is, is a new normal. And so we're bringing in like Katie Faust, 
who's uh, she has a great organization then before us to really help us think through the nature of family, what rethinking the family does to kids. Uh, we're going to have Thaddeus Williams, who's the author of Confronting Injustice Without Compromising the Truth. He's actually going to do a joint session, which we're, we need to update the website. We just um, uh, uh, brought on Monique Dusson to come and to do a joint session with him. She's the uh, president of the Center for Biblical Unity. And they're going to talk about the, 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 the racial strife that we see in our culture and all kind of the secular social justice arguments out there. And, and how, do we, how do we have biblical hope? What's a biblical view of racial justice? And then uh, J, J. Warner Wallace is going to be hitting on uh, his new book, the, the Person of Interest, and we want to bring all this back and say, okay, how do we keep Jesus the main focus, even as we deal with these cultural issues? How do we stay true to the primary mission of the church, which isn't just to engage in a cultural battle, but it's to uh, uh, to preach and proclaim the gospel, right? Uh, John Stonestreet is going to be speaking. Natasha Crane is going to be there, and she's going to speak on her new book, which is such an important book. Erin, uh, uh, my wife, Erin Kunkel is going to be there. Uh, John, oh, I meant, I think I mentioned John Stonestreet. Jonathan Morrow, uh, he's the uh, director of cultural uh, impact at uh, Impact 360. Um, I, I, we got a great lineup, and uh, it's just I think it's going to really help equip people to navigate some of these contemporary challenges and then to turn around and equip their kids. Because frankly, in this day and age, we have got to become the experts for our kids. Yeah. That doesn't mean we need to know it all at this moment, but we need to be constantly working and educating ourselves so that our kids will eventually begin to see our authority as someone who can weigh in on these challenges. So I, I want to be my kid's expert. In, and I think hopefully, you know, parents out there listening, they need to be their kids expert. Yeah. And so we need this kind of equipping. So I would encourage people come to the Maven conference. It is definitely a conference that's worth traveling for. We have people coming in from out of state for this conference. Uh, and then Thursday night, we're actually doing a free pre-conference event uh, at the same church at Crossline. All the details are at Maven com uh, mavenconferences.com. Yeah. Well, that was persuasive. I think I'm going to go now. Um, see, <laughs> you don't I'll have a choice. <laughs> I'll see you there <laughs> or else I'm fired if I don't go. Um, anyways, no, like I'm excited because again, as you mentioned, uh, these are such important issues, uh, that again, parents need to be trained on. It's not about just giving your kid a book of what the expert writes, but being trained yourself and, and being that example for the students. And so, um, yeah, March, uh, 18 and 19, right. And, um, yep. with the pre-conference thing on the 17th. And so no matter where you are, if you're in Southern California, let's see you there. If you are out of state, well, you can join the live stream. And so there are no excuses. Um, so Brett, um, man, I just had a good time with this conversation. A lot of fun chatting with you as it always is. And, uh, such wisdom coming, um, you know, from my side. And I hope that you, uh, were hearing kind of the examples that I was sharing with you, uh, that really related you. It seems like you're learning from me. Um, and mm. so, uh, <laughs> yeah, thank no. you. A wise one. I, I walk <laughs> away enlightened every time I'm on with you, Ryan. 
no, I appreciate it. No, it's, it's so good, and it is. Uh, you are you are a good boss and a good leader, and so I, I I enjoy and I love Maven. I want more people to check them out, and uh, you will not be disappointed in, in what Maven is doing and what uh, is happening. And again, you didn't mention this, but you know Brett and his wife Aaron host the Maven Parent Podcast, which specifically is for parents um, and is wonderful and is great, and I listen to that as well. And so. Um, Really good stuff. And so, Brett, thanks for coming on and joining me. All right, Ryan, it's always good to talk about deep things with a, 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 a strong ally. Appreciate your yeah. friendship, man. Absolutely. All right, everybody. Well, again, uh, all the information is down below, maventconferences.com, maventruth.com. You can also go back and check out my website, a lot of other interviews and conversations. If you are interested in, in looking into more issues related to the truth of the Christian worldview, there's tons of videos on my channel that you can check out that you may be interested in related to issues and questions that you have. Again, my goal here with this channel is to help you think deeply about Christianity, defend it well, and faithfully live it out. And so if that is your hope as well, you might be interested in subscribing checking it out, as well as share this information with a friend, family member, because this is information that needs to get out on how to live well in this cultural moment. So with that, thank you so much for joining us. Check out all of Maven's information, come to the conference, and I'll see you guys actually at the end of this week for the end of the month Q&A, as well as it is actually on the podcast anniversary. So I started the podcast about seven, six years ago. So we celebrated that anniversary, but having an end of the month live Q&A uh, on Friday. So I'll see you there, everybody. Have a wonderful rest of your week. And as always, continue to think deeply about God, Christianity, because they are worth thinking about. Bye, everybody. I just ask you won't hesitate to follow your love will guide my